This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in a particularly cavernous cave tonight <laughs> is... Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Is Emma Westwood? Uh, is literally the only other person. That, well, there's two. There's two other lovely people as well, but they're not on air. Uh, is Emma who joins us again after a whirlwind tour of Europe? Yes, I know, and uh, I, feel, I feel kind of like everyone's decided they're going to leave because I'm back. Should I be insulted? I I've, don't know. I've cleared out the cave. I'm the only one who's stayed back to uh, welcome you. <laughs> But, but welcome back. It's thank you, Paul. You're the best welcoming party as oh, well. Thank yes. you. Yes. <laughs> Suffering your jock, Sally and Cerise. Um, <laughs> so tonight we'll be sniffing around Matteo Garone's Cannes Prize-winning crime drama Dogman. For our retro title tonight, we'll be heading back to 1978 for a look at a dark time in Australia's history that still resonates too painfully today in Fred Scapisi's The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. And finally, we'll stick it to the man in Andrea Berloff's 70s-set New York City crime actioner, The Kitchen. Before we kick off, just a friendly reminder that if you didn't get to subscribe to Triple R during Radiothon, if you lodge a subscription by the end of the Triple R Radiothon pay-up period, which is on the 25th of September, if you get in before the 25th of September, you'll be still eligible for an array of major prizes, uh, all sorts of crazy things. Tours in Cambodia... Tickets to Zoo Twilights, um, a gold pass, particularly apt for uh, listeners of this show, a gold pass for films for a year with a double pass, and that's at Cinema Nova. A year's worth of gin. A year's worth of gin. <laughs> There's one. Also probably you know, applicable to saw. listeners of this show, mm-hmm. applicable to Emma. <laughs> uh, a monthly hand-picked case of mixed wine for a year, a fat bike in black mm. that folds down in seconds, a year of unlimited yoga and Pilates, and like so many things. So you if- need that after the gin. <laughs> Up to it's sitting like, in the movie position for a year. Yes. Uh, so yeah. So if you have not subscribed to Triple R yet um, and got to the end of Radiothon and thought, "Damn it, I've missed out," you have not. Um, subscribe before the twenty fifth of September. Um, the Triple R Radiothon pay up period is still continuing, and you can simply head to rrr.org.au to subscribe on site and help keep this station running. So our first film for this evening is Dogman. Small, gentle dog groomer Marcello, played by Marcello Fonte, runs a small shop called Dogman in a strip mall in a dilapidated Italian town. While divorced, Marcello dotes on his loving daughter and is friendly to a fault with the surrounding retailers. But he does supplant his dog grooming business with a little cocaine deal on the side. His daughter is fascinated by travel and Marcello longs to be able to afford to take her somewhere exotic someday. Being liked by everybody is really important to Marcello and he's keen never to disappoint. This gets increasingly difficult when Simone, a hulking petty thug who terrorises the neighbourhood at will, keeps barging into his shop, often to buy drugs, but just as often bullying Marcello into helping him commit robberies, whether as a driver or facilitator. Everyone else in the neighbourhood wants uh, Simone exterminated, but Marcello protects him from a silent distance. Again, he doesn't want to ruffle any feathers. But when Simone forces him into facilitating a crime close to home, Marcello sees this as a way to get out of this place with his daughter once more. But this is a world of Italian crime with a neo-realist spin, and here, nothing ever works out how one... Emma, did this tough little tale... Did you find this tough little tale to be a good, good, good boy, or did it wheel over your carpet? <laughs> um, 
I might start with my relationship with Matteo Garone. Once upon a time, no, okay. it's You're not dated? that long. It's not like that long. No, uh, I started at MIF 2008 or 2009 with Gamora, which was one of my most anticipated films for the MIF of that year. I was so excited to see it, and um, I guess you could say that it's kind of a similar similar premise in some ways, as in set within the uh, Italian crime crimes and, you know, underworld. Similar Cosa, universe. Cosa Nostra. Yeah. And, and, um, and this is meant to be set near Naples as well, Napoli, and so was um, Gomorrah, and based on, I believe this was based on a, a real story. On true events. True, true events, mm. yeah. As was Gomorrah. Uh, Gomorrah felt terribly flat for me. If anyone has seen it... Um, then um, maybe what I'm going to say will help, you know, provide a bit of a comparison point with this movie. And I remember at the time um, trying to – there was something about it that the way he filmed it um, and and the, actually what was the content really took me out of the narrative, distanced me and uh, it had the opposite effect of bringing me in. I was like I was expecting this Italian Scorsese film or something like that. And it was so excited. I was very, very disappointed when I, think I, he, I saw what I did. Scorsese even executive produced it or got it released. Yes, it did. No, you're something. right. Yep. Yep. That was, yeah, because I had the same reaction. Yeah. yeah. So as soon as you touch that name, I guess, you know, as an audience, we have certain expectations. Um, so to see this film, and to be totally honest, I can't really remember the details of Gamora very well, nor do I want to or watch it again. <laughs> uh, but going into this film, um, right from the beginning, I was totally beguiled with this film. I, I found it to be inc- compelling, um, you know, thoughtful, um, nuanced. It had light and shade. And I think that was a problem with Gamora. I think it was mainly shade. It just sort of – it was – underworld in every sense. Yeah. And even the look of the, the film was um, really quite – Dark and, and therefore heavy to hard to make out a lot of a lot of the stuff, which um, was strangely enough that kind of lack of definition really I think takes an audience out of something. And from what my memory of Gamora yeah. as well, there are also a million characters, none of whom you got to know. No, at any sort of point like it would flit around and and nobody would come off as being particularly memorable. And and it tried so hard to underplay everything that everybody was kind of equally sort of bland and and just kind of like, oh, they all sort of exist in this world. It's all coming back now, Paul. Yeah. You're bringing it back to me. Shame on you. No, <laughs> but... I was, yeah, no, it was exactly the same. I, I saw that film and I was like, oh, wow, that was a huge disappointment. I found it a real slog. Yeah. Whereas this, I, I, and I wanted to think about it as a comparative um, film afterwards because I thought, so why is this? Why is Dogman so good? The same filmmaker as well. And I think uh, one of the big thing was Dogs. Yes. The dogs were an, a wonderful addition. So the idea of taking a certain an underworld scenario and creating this great counterpoint that you actually want to watch, like everyone likes dogs, you know, mm. or, you know, he created this the light with the shade mm. uh, also helped really round out his character and his softness as a character and also um, – his idea of kind of he he was like and this is not in a derogatory way but he's like a dog you know he wanted mm. everyone to like yes. him yeah uh, he was the pack animal you know mm. and he um 
and it like showed, a puppy. Like, yeah, like, like a gonna... lovely puppy. Like I, initially when he came on the screen, I, I thought, is he going to be this kind of little simpering, annoying man? Uh, and he didn't come across in that way at all, despite the fact that he was someone who, you know, really was a bit lily-livered in, in, a, in, in many ways, that he wasn't going to stand up to Simone. And Simone, I believe that um, actor who played his role won Best Actor at Cannes, I think, for uh, that. It was Marcello. Oh, was that Marcello? Yeah, no, it was Marcello. Marcello one. Fair yep. enough. Fair enough. The real actor uh, was Marcello Fonte. Yeah. Who was like a lot of characters in this film have the same name as their actual name. Yes, yes, the daughter as well. I mm. noticed that, yeah. Um, so I think that it, it, it's, it goes to show that when even when you have dark material, material you've got to serve something light to people. Like Absolutely. there was amazing scene that um, – where the during a, a a home raid, the the guys decide to put the yapping dog, the yapping chihuahua, in a freezer, and we have Marcello go back and want to save the dog, mm. which is a really touching scene. Although when I watched it, someone laughed. Oh my god! I know. <laughs> It's hideous. I know. I thought I was actually quite taken aback by that, but anyway. Because that's the thing, because Marcello's driving them and they you know, they get out and they're like, oh, yeah, we almost got caught with the yapping dog and put him in the fridge. And he's like, wait, what? And as soon as Marcello hears that. He said, you you, you killed the dog, you realise. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, we do, nah, don't care. It also opens on a great dog scene. Like yes. it doesn't open on the cute puppy scene. It opens on a an aggressive dog and it, it was kind of sort of – I think that was setting us up for that relationship that Marcello has mm. with Simone. Like and it's a he big, was, aggressive dog as it well. Was like it's huge. A big, muscly, kind of staffy-like mm. dog that had uh, that was did not want to be bathed, basically. Um, and how um, Marcello just soothes this dog, and then eventually he's um, hair drying it with its jowls, kind of <laughs> flaying, and it's loving it, and yeah. So yes, I really enjoyed this experience. Yeah, I I was much the same. I I think too the way this distinguishes itself from Gamora is one its focus on a character, yeah. like rather than just a billion characters here sort of sifting you blink and you miss it and you can't connect to anyone. We're put very much in Marcello's shoes here. We're we're following him around. It's very intimate with him and um and yeah, and that's the thing. It's like at times he does sort of He's incredibly obsequious, but but we see with the dogs and with his daughter that he is really gentle and really sweet and and wants to make a better life for himself and and his daughter, um, and also to his his um, uh, the the film makes a lot of with Marcello and Simone their physical size and yes. that Marcello is tiny like he, he's a he's a really small dude and um, and and Simone is enormous hulk of a dude um, and so that. You, you just go, and I think the whole time I was watching this, I was like, I just, I don't want anything to happen to Marcello's daughter or the dogs. Dogs, yeah. And the whole time, I'm just like, you just felt fearful for them. Um, and as this sort of situation begins to go out of the control, and it's, it's been said, um, uh, if you play, it's, um, it's actually the the film finds its roots, and um, it's about fascism. Yeah, essentially, and it's about following a dictator yeah. who bullies you and everything. You stand up to it. Or, um, it, it was incredibly Italian. It feel, he makes films that are very. So this is Matteo Garoni. We're talking about Dog Man. He makes films that are very. Um, they feel 
totally Italian right through to the bone. Mm-hmm. Um, although he made a film called Tale of Tales, which was a sort of um, – but based around, from from what I remember, an Italian fairy tale writer. Mm. Um, but a completely different film. But uh, this film has also this interesting setting, which is out. And I'd be very interested to know where they shot it because that area seemed to be just a dilapidated, wrecked. It looked like an abandoned. Yeah, it looked like they were trying to set up like some of those built to be a hub of activity. Like there's a strip mall and there's like a weird. The playground. Playing ground. There's like a. There's a. Uh, what do you call it? Not like a roller coaster, but like a thing that goes around in a circle. <laughs> like you know, it's got a it's Ferris got a, wheel. No, no, it's like a train. A little yeah, like a little train. train but yeah. the train is like a dinosaur or something or a serpent. Oh, that yes. yeah, yeah, that was and interesting. It, and it follows. It's like on a circular track, but nobody ever rides it. It's all rusted out. It's all. It's but it was screwed. quite. It yeah. was quite stunning. It's like it's all been abandoned. It's yeah. deterioration, and mm. it looked like the type of area that would be prime real estate anywhere yeah. else because it was right on the water. Yeah, and a lot but of. But it's all kind of grey and gloomy, and and yeah, I, I just think this this film was just. I, I think it was incredibly tense and an incredibly interesting look at. You know, sometimes you can't please everybody sometimes you have to live by the strength of your own and do something about yeah, it yeah yeah and of course he does but then it's 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 yeah i, I think it's it's definitely worth seeing it's that. a great film and it, and it really winds up well as well I, I i expected it to kind of push past its um its welcome but it didn't it ended very strongly okay. i highly recommend it i agree uh, Dogman is currently screening at all good independent cinemas. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. So our second film for the evening is our retro title. It's 19... Uh, now, I've been taken to task over the pronunciation of uh, Fred Skepsi's name. I've always heard it as Fred Skepsi, but if you look at the spelling, it's spelled Fred Skepisi, and it's one of those things I wonder, have we all been saying it wrong? You know how people say Essendon? And it's Essendon. Yes. It's not Essendon. You know, well, is it like that? Is it, is it, is it, is I think it is. I actually have heard, um, well, I've only ever heard it pronounced Skepsi. Same. So we can only really go with that, Paul. Right. I know you're trying to rewrite history, but... I'm trying to... Like Tarantino, trying to rewrite history. Uh, I'm trying to elevate the, you know, the pronunciation, the uh, grammatical whatevers. Uh, based upon Thomas Keneally's novel, I hope I said that right, um, uh, which itself was based on actual events that occurred around 1900. Fred Skepsi's film stars Tom E. Lewis in his debut as Jimmy Blacksmith, a half-Aboriginal, half-Caucasian young man raised and educated by a reverend played very much against type by Jack Thompson and his wife, who lovingly care for Jimmy, even while openly stating their intention for him to marry a nice, well-raised white girl to start breeding the black out of his bloodline. Now a man, Jimmy sets out to make a life for himself in pre-Federation Australia, but he constantly finds himself a man caught between two cultures, belonging in either. He's constantly berated, belittled and shortchanged by his reluctant white employers because of the colour of his skin, yet looked down upon somewhat as a mission kid by his own people all except for his loving, full-blooded Indigenous brother Mort, played by Freddie Reynolds. But after stints of fence-building and even with the police, uh, where somebody, uh, where another Indigenous man dies in custody um, on his watch, 
Uh, Jimmy winds up working on a farm and finding a young white wife, Gilda, who genuinely loves him. But the family he works for continually deride and humiliate him, taking pleasure in discovering Gilda's delivering a white child, all trying to bring his new life undone. When he's visited by members of his Aboriginal family, his employers take umbrage and stop paying and feeding Jimmy and is only claiming he's becoming quote-unquote lazy. This proves the final straw for Jimmy, who lashes out in the most shocking of ways and soon has to take Mort, Gilda and the child on the... Emma! Yes, Paul. Uh, I don't have a singer for this one. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's not that kind of movie. But it <laughs> doesn't uh, feel right doing that. No. Does it? no. Uh, how familiar? How familiar have you been with this film, Obvious? I've seen. I saw it a long time ago, uh, so I was familiar with it. And um, but I hadn't seen it uh, for a number of years until I watched it when you made the choice for it's your retro yes, pick. This is my retro pick for the week, which uh, is why why is it your retro pick then, Paul? I feel like I, I'm looking at. I think that um, Australian film has actually been grappling with Australia's troubling colonial past for a long time. Um, and Australia has been grappling with its trouble. Exactly. But <laughs> not ac- just film. <laughs> but actually, you know, looking at it and, 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 and um, confronting it and questioning it and not sweeping the rug and yeah, not actually, teaching film- it in school and all that sort of business. I think this is a good point because uh, the good, the great, the great thing is this film is evidence that um, this the film industry or the arts industry has actually decided to take this topic on head on for quite a long time, um, although it's taken, unfortunately, uh, a few areas or sectors of Australian society to catch up, shall yes. we say. Um, and, you know, like I remember being taught a lot about you know, Dutch explorers during primary, uh, during high school, but not about Indigenous genocide. And, yeah, uh, I had the same thing. Yeah. Yep. So the fact that this film and, you know, some other films like Walkabout and whatever, we were tackling this stuff in the 70s was, was, um, was great and also confronting for audiences um, in the best kind of way. And it's just, you know, sort of saying this isn't a new thing. Um, yeah, uh, and I, I yet, it, yet it was from an Australian filmmaker. See, Nicholas Rogue made walk, walk about. He did. Often it required someone from outside to come in and actually shine a light on something that Australians were uncomfortable talking about. Themselves. Yes, yeah. even Ted Kotcheff with Wake and Fright. Exactly. On, yeah, yeah, so it's kind of mm. nice that this is an Australian filmmaker uh, digging into this. Um, and I just I, I love the way this um, I love the complexity of it. Mm. And I think this kind of story works so much better when it has that complexity of character, complexity um, of motivations. Everyone feels like a human being in this, like even the, the terrible, you know, whites feel like human beings. You know, we can't fit, you know, we can't excuse or forgive them for what they do, but we have an insight into why they believe they're doing the right thing. Yes, exactly. Um, even though what they're doing to, to Jimmy is horrible and his people are horrible. And Tommy Lewis is so good as Jimmy Blacksmith. Like, he's just so um, so lovely and believable. And and there's nothing more heartbreaking than a lead that is constantly trying to do the right thing and trying to be optimistic and trying to improve, like, trying to go, no, if I make the best of this, everything will be okay. If I make the best, and it's just what, and, and, you know, it, and so when the poor guy snaps, we feel it. Yeah, and I, I think that this is this sort of thing is I I just feel like this film has uh, a much more um, I guess cogent psychology in terms of what you know where everything's at than mm. some other films. Yeah, yeah. That, that take a you know it, it's uh, there's other films out there that take a white hat black hat kind of mentality and yes. very um, yeah yeah yeah. Um, 
as you were saying, yeah, the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, I think it came out at a time, it was quite a shock at the time when it actually it actually came out because it was something that, well, we weren't taught as kids at school, so it was something that people didn't want to live up to. Um, I think now the story feels sort of more obvious now looking, um, watching it in, I don't know, an enlightened light. <laughs> Shall I use the W word? No, Woke? don't. No? Don't. <laughs> Whoops. So, yeah, it's it's something that, yeah, it feels more obvious, but I think it's really important to see this film as what it was at the time and it was sort of like throwing the Molotov cocktail in, you know, people's homes and and no one wanted to see it. Watching it now, I thought in 78, this must have just felt like a bucket of cold water. Exactly. And it was also set around Federation and Federation plays a big role in this. So it's really about that establishment of Australia and, and it's putting home, you know, not... It's putting forward not so subtly this idea that this is what Australia is built on because Mm. this was when Federation happened. The actual crime or the actual um, real-life case, he was – I think it's probably – I can say he was hanged Mm. after Federation. They actually – kept his hanging, they waited because they didn't want to uh, wreck the festivities for right. Federation. So, kind of that. Yeah. But the the casting of this is really, really interesting, I think, especially for Australian history because it's just the players in this film are incredible. It's just uh, 20, 30-odd years of Australians uh, acting royalty. Um, Jack... Thompson playing um, the 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 well-intentioned Christian man who's trying to breed out the black in him and give him yeah. Christian values. Angela Punch before she became the McGregor as Gilda, his his wife, which was I found a really sweet and touching role mm. actually. And the fact that um, she was be able to be so pure and just just love him for what he yeah. was. Not only that, but he was a beautiful looking man. Mm. I don't think it was it wasn't hard to love him. He he really. I think that it used um, uh, appearance in a really interesting way because he is um, um, Barlang Lewis. That's Tommy Lewis's um, indigenous name. Barlang. He died last year, yeah. by the way, not long ago. Um, uh, he is very good looking, you know, in a, in any sense of the word, a traditional sense. Um, so it's hard to believe. I think that makes us even angrier because it's hard to believe that anyone wouldn't warm to that mm. smile or anything. It was more him. his spirit for me, like more like he's so like he's so willing to to you know to well it, yeah came he's so out friendly. in that smile. He's so lovely. Yeah. Like he's yeah. just so like, and it's like. You know, and, and and to just constantly just keep throwing this back in his face. Like, well, he did you transform. Don't belong, you don't belong. You don't belong. It's like it's horrible. You he know? did transform somewhat physically when he um, when he clicked, and also he gets um, facially injured towards mm. the end. And I thought that was an interesting thing. It was sort of part of the ugliness coming out. You mm. know, that was an ugliness know, forced upon him. Forced by, upon by the him. White yeah, man. and yeah. it's showing someone between a rock and a hard place. I mean, he really wasn't. And Barlang Lewis was um, half white, half Indigenous as well. So he embodied that in real life and no doubt had 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 to straddle those two worlds as well. But it kind of showed that 
I thought this film was really interesting when his actual his cultural stuff came out. You know, when the baby was born, mm. and and when he he got excited and he started doing that little dance. Mm. That was an amazing scene. Mm. And then the actual attack scene as well, when he snaps, um, is. Incredibly brutal. Mm. It's filmed. It's an epic film. The music is epic. The yeah. music is really big, but kind of weirdly epic a couple of times. It, There's a couple yes. of times it's suitable, and other times you're like, I, I would have dialed it down a couple of notches. Well, because like, yeah, Skepsi actually shoots it quite small. Mm. Like it's quite contained, and um, yeah, it's 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 got big themes, but it is yeah, it's presented in a, a smaller way but that yeah that music there was also some strange narrative jump, jumps as well that I thought were like big big narrative jumps that weren't um presented in their wholeness if you know what I mean okay. like I kind of missed oh that's happened okay yeah there was a couple of times like that right. but overall it's a, just a really engrossing film as well and infuriating it makes yeah, you really it's absolutely angry. sad and infuriating and and you know and still incredibly um, relevant in so many ways and that, that and in the ways that we treat people who are you know who are different yeah um, who aren't the dominant in class exactly um, yes. and yeah I just I just found this uh, really really quite bracing and it's you know and it's it's very and as a film it's very absorbing as well it's propulsive it moves far it's got um it's got some sort of almost genre elements as well you know this was this was actually balang lewis's first film yeah it was his debut yeah and um Skepsi's, fred Skepsi's wife apparently found him on the street mm. it's like you know airport or something yeah, walked past him, airport. like yeah. literally walked past him and went you'd be good in the film. And the interesting thing is it wasn't a one-off. He actually ended up having a career um, in film and performance, um, I think also in music. Uh, and he kind of picked, sort of jumped, he appeared in things like We of the Never Never and things like that across time. Also, he's, I think his last screen appearance was Goldstone, so uh, in the Ivan Sen film. That was his last film appearance? Yeah. Uh, he was in the show Wrong Kind of Black which oh, came okay. out last year or yep. the year before yep. as well. Yep. Um, he had a pretty good strike rate, actually. Like most of the stuff he was in was pretty good. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, this film, the, 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 being in the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, no doubt would have given him a leg up, let's oh, say, in the industry because as well, uh, who else? But, well, Tom, was Thomas Keneally playing yes. the chef? That yep. was yeah, that was mm-hmm. hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> that beard. You that was so funny. You can't not tell him by Robin the beard. Robin Nevin, Ruth Cracknell. I Bloody mean, really. Flamin' Ray Ma. He Ray was in it. Ma, that's he right. He wasn't saying Flamin' though. <laughs> Is, you know, him and Peter Sumner were like these kind of bounty hunters. It was Yeah, it was... Uh, I, I I really I just really love this and I think it's one of the most important Australian films ever made and um and proves to some people who have watched a recent film that deals with these sort of issues who think that this is the first time that Australia's ever dealt with these issues on screen no <laughs> we've done it before I was going to bring that up Paul but you know. um yeah there were some people in my screening who were like saying something kind of very incredulous about, oh, this is essentially this has begun and it's like, no, it hasn't. We've been with this oh, film absolutely. for decades. There was, a, there was a film that never got a cinematic release in Australia. It went straight to video called Dark Age. Miff actually played it, an Arch Nicholson film from 1988. That has a very, very strong um, Indigenous message about, well, basically 
Australia's guilt with yeah. uh, Indigenous people. And, it, you know, we've got a lot of films that there's have dealt horror, with this sort of stuff. Peter Weir's The Last Wave. There's yeah, a horror exactly. film in the 80s called Kadaicha. Oh, I don't know that one. With uh, Zoe Karides. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, dig into your film history, guys. There's some really good stuff out there. Um, the Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith is available to stream on Amazon Prime and Canopy and to rent or buy on Google Play and YouTube Rentals. Three, triple. The Kitchen is one of the year's most unlikely comic book adaptations, based on a comic from DC's uh, alternative imprint Vertigo. Well, until recently, until they shuttered it. R.I.P. Vertigo. Um, set in New York's Hell's Kitchen in the 19, late 1970s, after their Irish mob husbands are arrested committing a robbery and sent to prison for four years, wives Kathy, Melissa McCarthy, Ruby... Tiffany Haddish and Claire, Elizabeth Moss, quickly realise the mob aren't going to look after them and have to come up with a strategy of their own if they're going to get through their husband's prison stretches and not end up on the street. The existing boss of Hell's Kitchen, little Jackie, and his domineering mother, and Ruby's mother-in-law from Hell, Helen, uh, could care less for the three women, so when the trio find out the collections haven't been coming in so much lately, they start using a little public relations sugar to get local businesses to pay up which works a treat, and the three women start making some bank of their own. This will lead them afoul of Little Jackie and Helen, but also the Italian mob of Brooklyn and the FBI, among others. But the women are going through changes themselves as their lives as the self-appointed godmothers of Hell's Kitchen begin to flourish. Kathy relishes her role as a major labour force, Ruby becomes ever more chillingly efficient, and Claire, previously beaten and timid, discovers her in a psychopath. But when their husbands get out of prison, will everything turn back to the way it was before, or will there be... Emma, did this slice of comic book-inflicted, grungy 70s New York have you looking to start your own crime family? It had me realising how good Martin Scorsese is <laughs> because this could have been like a Scorsese film, really, uh, yet... Trailer very much presents it as one. It, Yeah, it does, actually. Uh, even the use of music. Mm. Uh, there's uh, very much, a, you know, music of the time, kind of funky, groovy hit list going on. Um and, you know, it's the music's used quite well, not as well as Scorsese. This is the thing. Nothing in here was used as well as Scorsese would. And what I felt was very interesting or what was noticeable about it was the way that it it seemed to have an incredibly even pace. Like it felt like it would be screenwriting 101. It seemed to hit turning points where they were meant to be, mm. you know, it, the act structure was the way it should be. This is this is the, you know, proves that the rules need to be broken basically mm. at some stages. Like what Scorsese does so well is be able to milk uh, a moment or milk a scene, a high dramatic scene, or um, whereas this film just didn't seem to give um, its action or its drama or its the actual narrative moments room to breathe and kind of stepped on them constantly. Mm-hmm. So it, it just seemed to move into different areas really quickly and not appropriately. The pace was odd. Even the start of the the um, racket, it seemed so easy that they mm. just stepped into this. I thought, could it really be this easy? And then when we get into the third act, there are, well, there are a couple of really eye-rolling moments for me. There was almost a Scooby-Doo mask rip-off reveal mm. that I thought, 
was kind of ludicrous and um, and infuriating. It really annoyed me. It didn't right. need to be in there. Yeah. I don't. I could see that still playing out, and the drama of the end of this film still playing out in a similar way. Because, but maybe maybe they felt hampered by their source material. I haven't read the source material, um, and they might have just tried to keep um, everything in there. Mm. But that was a mistake. That's where I think if you make a film, you've got to make a film on its own terms. Well, they did change a couple of things. Um, Ruby is not African-American in oh, okay. the comics. They changed that and added that whole level of her never being accepted by the Irish and, and having to kind of force her own way and her sort of marrying an Irishman to try and crack into that world mm-hmm. um, to, to help make her way. So that was that was something added. So I don't know how faithful – again, I've, I've not read the source material either, um, but um, – yeah, they're, they're clearly they were willing to make some changes, so yeah. they probably should. So they have made a few no more. excuse then, yeah. basically. Uh, but I like seeing Melissa McCarthy, for example, in a, a straight role because I kept on waiting for her to kind of I don't know I'm going to climb him like a tree or something, <laughs> yeah. you know, at certain points of the yeah. the thing. But no, she kept it. She she was great. All the performances were great, particularly. Donald Gleeson. Mm. For a moment, I didn't recognise him, and I thought he was sensational. He was a standout male role. Also, Annabella Sciorra. I was very I pleased to see her. her. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, same thing. Right back from again. You know, it's one of those early nineties it, films. Well, it's those actresses who were basically blackballed by the Weinstein's. Yes, and uh, you know, yeah. like her and Ashley Judd and Mira Sorvino. I kind of, I take a delight in seeing them all in things now. Like, yeah, that's, people are bringing them back. It's so good. Yeah, but um. It was. I think it was a clever choice in the casting of the men. They didn't um, pick stars that mm. would really overshadow, or you know, just their star power, uh, their name overshadow yes. the women. Obviously, you know, the kitchen. It's got you know double meaning there. And um, but um, you know, I think it was well intentioned, but it mm. just wasn't there for me. I gotta say, like this film's copped a battering from critics. I actually don't think it's that bad, and I think it's as because. Conversely, there was a film that came out late last year that I thought was a bit wildly overrated called Widows. Oh, that Widows, sort of yeah. was a very pumped up, big uh, budget version of this it. sort of thing. Yeah. I know what you mean, no, but Widows I Widows is it. great until it realises, oh, we're adapting a six-part TV series and we've spent the, ha- the first half of the movie doing episode one and now we're going to fit the other five episodes into the next hour go and things start happening and everything means nothing because everything's happening so quickly it just burns it spends its last hour burning through story you sound like you described the kitchen just then well this is the thing (laughs) i found i found the kitchen much more um yeah it does have a tendency to burn through story a little bit but i found it a lot more uh, a lot more even paced um i i really liked the three leads i thought they were all terrific um I haven't actually. Like, I haven't. I don't think I've seen Tiffany Haddish in anything. I've not seen Girls Trip or anything like that. Um, She's been in a bit of TV too, right? Um, with Tracy Morgan. I forget the name of the is series. It the last OG or whatever. It's yeah, in that yeah. Or something She's very like good. That. Well, she's great in this. Yeah. And Elizabeth Moss, I'm always a fan of. Um, she's one of those people I, I delight in seeing turn up. In this. Um, and I liked. I what I liked about this film was I liked the grimy New York Hell's Kitchen kind of feel. I felt like um. Something like The Deuce, you know, that HBO show. 
about yeah. the, the porn world in the 70s with um, James Franco. Like, it felt like that. It felt like, you know, um, the, uh, yeah, kind of nouveau sort of take on on grungy Hell's Kitchen New York. I really dug that. I liked, but what I, I think what I liked the most, and I'm like you, that, that reveal, that plot twist late in the film where one character is revealed to be in league with someone else is pointless. Like, mm. I, I saw that. It just felt like it, it felt kind of like bad Shyamalan. Um, but I liked, but I love the um, the um, moral complexity of the characters in this. I liked that we 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 got to watch. You know, Donald Gleason's character comes in. And he's basically being brought on because he's a little bit of a psychopath. And he starts bringing out the psychopath in Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss, Moss, and she yeah. starts delighting in that. And I really like that sort of stuff. It's like, yeah, this is the sort of stuff we don't. And they start kind of turning. Although there is a turn. Ruby takes a turn at one point that does feel very plot driven, like very like, okay, we need to do this now. It has to be said, this is the directorial debut of screenwriter Andrea Burloff. Yes. And and she wrote this as well. Yes. So it's sort of, um, you know, again, it, it makes probably makes sense that it's very, it feels like kind of mechanically screenwritten at times because it is made by a first time, a screenwriter as first time director. Um, but for the most time, uh, most part, I like the style of this. I really like the cast. I had a reasonably good time. Like I came out going, this is like, and, and again, it's it, it felt like a good programmer. You know, mm. like a good B movie. It. I like the way that they didn't do the sister, the kind of the idea of the sisterhood. Um, look, sisters are doing it for themselves. Yeah. They didn't play that. There's a couple of moments where they hit that on the head, but for most of the film, they don't. And they I, don't. And I and, dug that. And about. with Helen, the crime boss mm-hmm. mama, she was fantastic. Margot you know, Martindale, who's always great. Who's in everything as well. She yeah. just seems to pop up in everything, uh, which I, you know, I really, I, I, I like that. It wasn't just sisters for sisters sort of thing because that just doesn't actually happen. So yeah. it was a bit more, um, yeah, it was a bit more layered than that. Like you said, it was more of the, it had more of a moral co- complexity that I did enjoy. But ultimately I just, yeah, I was, I was disappointed, but not disappointed, furious disappointed, just like, meh. Yeah, sort of like it was that. A solid six for me. The kids, <laughs> solid six. The kitchen, well, that's not very high. No, no. no. But like you know, you've got an afternoon. The kitchen is currently screening at all good major cinemas. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Emma Westwood and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discuss Dogman, now screening in all independent cinemas. Our retro title, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, now available to stream on Amazon Prime and Canopy and to rent or buy on Google Play and YouTube Rental. And The Kitchen, now screening in all good major cinemas. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at rrr.org.au right now where you can also subscribe to Triple R. Next week in The Cave, we will dig into It, Chapter 2, Angel of Mine, and our retro title, Pretty Maids All in a Row. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, to Killer Carl Chapman for panelling the show, and to Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.